Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and here in my office today we have... Sam Mulberry. For, it, was, it was not at a meeting. That's right. For, although, although I'm headed to one very <laughs> shortly. so We get Sam for 10 minutes. All I'm right. Andy Bramson. And I'm Mitchell Crum. So we have the full compliment today. Uh, we're going to talk about politics here in a little bit, but first a couple of quick announcements. Uh, if you would, take a minute, go to iTunes and find our show. Give us a rating um, and write a review for us. That would help other people find us. Uh, actually, found, I found out this last week. If you Google election shock therapy, we're the first thing that comes up. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, yeah, it's the Podbean site is the first thing. Nice, yeah, nice. I love it. Um, it's good search engine optimization there, Chris. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> All right, uh, and um, email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail dot com. We'd love to have your questions. I have a couple a uh, uh, couple emails to get to uh, in even in this uh, in this podcast. We'll get to those a little bit later. Uh, Sam, uh, you um, you got me published, man. I but, did. Uh, but on the I history did. department's webpage, why is the political scientist? Well, not the webpage on our blog. That's well, different than good our webpage. Good point. Good yeah. point. Yeah. True. Uh, well, do you want to? <laughs> so uh, Chris Garretts has sort of run the history department blog for as long as it's existed. Chris Garretts is a professor of history here. Correct. At- yeah, um, and he had been our chair for a number of years, um, and he's a does a lot of blogging. He's a blogger. <laughs> That's what he does. He blogs and, at the Pietist Schoolman. Yes, and. Um, and he's on sabbatical this semester, so our new chair said, oh, we still have to do this blog thing, and now Chris isn't here. So we all got assigned to blog, like, or we signed up to do blog posts throughout the semester. So I signed up for my, the two that I was required to do, um, and then promptly felt like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do on the history department blog. So then Chris pitched an idea to me. So um, I am a subscriber to Foreign Policy Magazine, amongst other publications. And one of the things that they've done over the last couple of years is a photojournalist segment called The Things They Carried where they'll interview somebody who works in some kind of international relations field, maybe a U.N. weapon inspector or a diplomat or um, someone that is actually a trafficker, for a human trafficker um, who, who's been arrested. And then they'll unpack everything that they're carrying with them and take pictures of it and then have them explain why they carried those things. So I pitched the idea to Sam to talk about how, what faculty might do. So then I so I did that for myself. I looked at what I take to class with me when I teach, um, and then I showed it to my department. So my department is going through a series of everyone in our department is doing this. So I've done I photographed um, all but one person in our department. Um, so those posts are coming up. But while I was uh, because I had to do two blog posts, yep. um, so I did I did mine and then. Um, while I had the photo stuff set up, I said, "Chris, you teach two HIS courses, so I do." We had uh, I had Chris um, take photos, or I took photos of Chris's items, and then uh, this week was my second blog post for the semester. So I did Chris Moore, the things they carry. So this yeah. can be found if you just search for uh, Bethel History Blog, or um, yeah, I think that's probably the best way to find it. Bethel okay. History Department Blog. Um, it's currently the the top the the, the the m- most recent um, post on that blog. But it's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, the idea is that you can look at the material objects that somebody surrounds themselves with or what they carry and that those things come together to tell a kind of story. So it's mm-hmm. interesting because we all on its face have the same job. We all go into a classroom and teach. But it's interesting to see 
you know, there are some things that we all have. Like, I'd be surprised if people didn't have pens or a notepad or something or books. But but it's interesting as you get a little bit deeper, the different items people carry. And then they explain why why they have those things, how those things either shape the way that they run their class. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're comfort items. Sometimes they're sure. uh, jokes that they do, things like that. So it's um, <laughs> you get a, you get a, I think you get a different insight into uh, into the work that different people do. Okay, so I have to ask you, and you've done this now for half a dozen faculty? Yeah, I'm around there, yeah. Uh, what's the most fascinating item you photographed? Uh, you know, I, I, I went with Dinah Magnuson. I went to the... Um, professor, uh, longest tenured history professor. Now. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I was her TA when I was a student here. Um, I went with her to the uh, the Bethel Archives. She's, our, she's a, both an American historian and our archivist. So I got to take pictures of... Um, uh, items that she uses as an archivist, hmm. which is kind of fascinating, including a uh, old IBM Selectric typewriter, oh, which wow. I learned to type on. I'm I'm old enough, you know. Hmm. I am not a millennial. I'm old enough to remember learning to type <laughs> on an electric typewriter. So it was it was cool to just see it. She turned it on and just to hear like the hum. Hmm. And she said it's you know it's the kind of machine that you actually have to turn on and let warm up for a little bit. You don't just turn it on and start typing. Like wow. you <laughs> yeah. gotta let it gotta let it warm up. So that was a pretty cool. A pretty cool thing, and there's just a lot of interesting little objects in the archive sure. that are not not things in the archive, but tools that she uses that are specific to the type of work she does. Hmm. Very cool. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for doing that too. Absolutely. Um, before we dive into um, uh, national politics, uh, it's registration time. All of our students are madly trying to get into classes, and so um, some of our people who listen to us are here at Bethel, but other people are not, have no ins- affiliation with their institution. So I have to ask you guys, what are you teaching next semester? I'm teaching African politics. I'm teaching um, one of human, your specialties, which is one of my specialties. I'm teaching um, human rights and international history, which is actually um, founded by Chris Garretts yep. as a course, but they've passed it off to our department for a while. And then I'm teaching in the spring um, two sections of Humanities Three, which okay. covers um, basically from sort of the uh, late 1600s up through the 19th century, and we focus nice. a lot on American developments. And then in January, term, who are you going to read? Humanities Two. Oh, man, we read lots of things in there. We read Burke, we read Payne, we read Tocqueville, uh, we read um, the autobiography of Mary Rowlandson, we read Frederick Douglass, we read the Lincoln-Douglass debates, Um, so it's a lot, and I'm I'm leaving out several things. Jane Austen, we do a Jane Austen dance, that's fun. So. Uh, in the interim, we do Shakespeare, and we we perform a Shakespeare play. Have you ever read Jane Austen Game Theorist? No, I have not. But you've told me about it before. Okay, I'll have to get that to you. <laughs> Michael, Michael Tree at, uh, I think he's at UCLA. Don't call me on that. Okay. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get that for you. Uh, I'm going to be teaching uh, two sections of Intro to American Politics. Um, and timely. That, yes. Right. It's always, it's always, it's always timely, actually. Uh, you know, one of the things mm-hmm. that I think, you know, people have come up to me over the last uh and, and this this has happened actually over the last year. I taught a class on elections um, in the in the uh, spring of this year, early of uh, 2016, and people would come up to me and they'd say, "Oh, you know, this is so timely." And it's like, well, you know, in some ways these things are always timely. Yep. You know, actually, yep. you know, there's always, especially the intro to politics. I mean, there's always politics going on. There's always, in fact, at this time, and I think that's what we're going to get to. You know, just when everyone starts to kind of look away, and in fact, I had mm-hmm. uh, one of my Facebook friends. I posted uh, a little something about the election, and somebody just posted and said, "Stop it! I'm tired. <laughs> you know, I don't want to hear." Any more about this? And so, and 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 basically, one of the tough, things tough enough. There are people who are still talking about the Sopranos. Scrolling, buddy. So, but you know, but one of the things to think about is, you know, this is actually when the rubber hits the road, and in mm-hmm. some ways, what's happening mm-hmm. now is almost is, is really, in many ways, more important yeah. than what's been, even been happening over the last few months. So, um, so so yeah, so so I'm teaching intro to American politics, um, and then in the 
uh, interim, the J term, I'll be teaching uh, revolutions and modern development, which cool. should be a blast, um, especially if you want a revolution. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got to sing the Beatles song. Uh, so anyway, uh, but then. Um, uh, then I'll also be teaching in the in the spring. I'll be uh, working with Sam doing the um, CWC Christianity Western Culture, and then uh, the other upper the uh, upper level class I'll be teaching is Modern Political Thought, um, which uh, the way that uh, it'll be taught is basically starting with uh, Nietzsche and going forward. So basically, mostly contemporary stuff and looking at the um, and looking at, yeah looking at very. Recent Who are you stuff. most looking forward to uh, to reading or talking about? Oh, I don't know. There's so many. I mean, in some ways, that's um, We'll be we'll be reading most of my favorites, so I'm mm. pretty excited about nice. it. Uh, Only we'll be, the hits, right? Like, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll be we'll be reading. I mean, I love. I mean, you know, I, that's the thing. Like, you go through the list, and it's like these are all people that I love to to look at. I mean, like Nietzsche is mm-hmm. a blast, uh, you know, and it's so. <laughs> it's, Nietzsche is a blast. Nietzsche is a Crumb. blast, man. Yeah, he is. <laughs> that's a good um, yeah. yeah, that's mm. right. Um, it's yeah. You, anyway, you need to convince me on Nietzsche. When, 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 the, when the abyss is staring back at you, man. I mean, you know. Anyway, so <laughs> at any rate, so uh, and then I mean, I love I love uh, Abraham Kuyper. So we're going to be reading him. We'll be looking nice. at uh, Charles Taylor. Uh, we'll be looking at John Rawls um, in depth. So all of these, um, you know, kind of kind of the um, big hits, and cool. it'll be it'll be mm-hmm. great. Nice, very cool. Sam, you're teaching CWC. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, it's uh, Christianity Western Culture. Um, so it's a Western Civ course. It's a Bethel kind of specific Western Civ course because it be, because it combines uh, Western Civ with church history, and we look at sort of the interactions of Christianity and Western culture. Um, we start in, with the ancient Greeks, so kind of setting the stage for the world into which Christianity is born, and we go all the way um, all the way through the European Enlightenment. Uh, so it's a it's a dash through history, um, <laughs> and there's it's, it's team taught. So we have political scientists, historians, philosophers, um, theologians, theologians. So it's it's really it's really fun. Um, it's it's my favorite class to teach. So I teach that every semester. Um, and then this interim, I'm teaching World War One, so I'm traveling with mm. Chris Garrett, who's sort of haunting this episode. We keep that's okay. <laughs> yeah, um, hey Chris, <laughs> uh, we're we're bringing 21 students to Europe to learn about the First World War. So Very I will cool. say this: you mentioned registration. If people want to try to enroll in these classes, mm-hmm. all my sections are closed, Chris. So. Boom. <laughs> so yeah, Ooh, so and with that, I actually will drop the mic because I have to go to a meeting. Oh, <laughs> nice. Well played. Uh, well, one of mine's closed. I, I I've got one closed out. But I have I have opens in a, openings in a couple other classes. I'm teaching the political science department's senior seminar, uh, which is a capstone course for us, which never closes. <laughs> well, you have to be you have to qualify by being a senior in the political right, science exactly. department. And there's like you know we we capital pretty high for the amount of seniors we have. Yeah, so. yeah. I have I have eight, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. That's not, that's about nice almost number. the perfect number. It is. And then I um, I'm also teaching introduction to international relations, which I teach almost every semester. And that's um, is that closed. That is closed. That is closed with people with por- torches and pitchforks at the door trying to get into it. <laughs> yes. And um, I'm also teaching one of my specialties: um, politics of terrorism and counterterrorism. Nice. I'm very excited about that. I might have heard, I might have um, shot myself in the foot, gentlemen. I have I basically have an almost entirely new reading list for that class. So oh wow! Ma- you major revamp. Yourself? Oh. So I'm going to be spending part of my Christmas um, prepping some oh, new lectures. I've done that before. <laughs> that's yeah. That's a lot. So. Anyway, that's a little bit glimpse into what we do here and what uh, what 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 we're about here. We might uh, we might shift in some of those kinds of directions as well as some others. We have a we have a whole set of plans we're thinking about for, as we move into this post election season. Uh, we're still going to talk about politics, don't worry, but we might be doing some other things too. I want to be really clear to flag those things mm-hmm. in the podcast channel, so you know what you're getting in for um, if you download a podcast. But it's now time to talk about 
transitions. And that's kind of the <laughs> sub-theme for, uh, for the remainder of this podcast. Uh, the Trump administration still feels a little bit weird to say that. I think it would be weird if I would have said the Clinton yeah. administration, too. Um, but we're sort of getting, you know, we've had the eight Clinton years. administration would have felt like deja vu. It would have felt like a, little a bit, teenager yeah. again. A like, little bit. A little bit of Bill. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Um, but I, um, you know, we, we've had eight years of Obama, so anything is going to be disjunctive. Mm-hmm. And let's keep that in mind. But I want to talk a little bit about um, what, how things are happening as and what things are happening mm-hmm. as the Trump uh, team and, uh, begins to take over the government. It's a relatively quick turnaround. One of the reasons mm-hmm. we have elections in November and inaugurations in January is because we sort of need that ramp-up time of a couple of months to give a new president and their staff a time to get settled and learn some of the things they're going to need to do to keep the government running. Mm-hmm. It's a complex job. And get their team in place. I mean, there's about 4,000 appointments or so that the president has to make. Um, and, yeah, it takes a while to figure out who those, who's going to fill those positions. Well, th- that raises a good question, Andy. So one of the things I want to talk to both of you about is your take on what does a presidential transition look like, just in abstract, not just this. We're going to get to this mm-hmm. one specifically, but um, hiring 4,000 people, surely Donald Trump is not sifting through 16,000 resumes, right? Um, how so. is this okay. happening? What is the process by which a new administration is formed? Uh, well, I mean, I think I can start this off with just saying I think usually you have somebody to head up the team and to kind of sort of give a direction for where you want to go with this. Um, you have to establish some kind of process to decide who's going to be considered. Obviously, um, there are typically people who have been in the campaign or who have been loyal supporters um, who you're going to you know be thinking about already and that you've kind of already you know probably put a word in saying, hey, you know, if this works out, I'd be interested in a position or possibly even a particular position, right? Um, and so, so you have, you know, there are some people who are going to be kind of shoe ins, um, just based on their position with the campaign. Um, and then, you know, and then you have to sort of, you know, choose from the usual suspects. I mean, there's a, there's usually a group of sort of highly qualified people within the party, um, who mm-hmm. are going to be on the, the short list. So that would be often hailing from a previous president. Yeah. Often, often people who are in lower, lower level positions or sometimes even cabinet level positions in previous, um, administrations who you're going to be Dick Cheney famously about. was a secretary um, of defense right, and a, right. a congressman before serving as vice president. Yeah. And before he'd been congressman, he had been chief of staff. Yes. Um, exactly. To right. Gerald Ford. Right. Correct. So he'd, you know, he had come from an earlier administration. So, um, you know, so that, those are some of the, I guess the, some of the things you think about. So typically, you know, the president's going to choose some, or president elect's going to choose somebody to head that team and to kind of be the person who's sorting through how we, how we want to proceed with that. But obviously, the the final call on the appointments is the president. I mean, the you know the buck stops there, right? Sure. Thank you, Harry. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't have my Harry Truman mug today, though. No, I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> I have my insulated mug today. So, uh, Mitch, what else do you want to add? What, what else do we need to think about when we think about presidential transitions? Uh, I mean, a lot of what we're uh, what we would expect to see as well is um, essentially people starting to even move into those positions. So you'd actually mm-hmm. see people actually starting to. Um, sort of shadow um, the jobs that they're about to right. take over and start to attend seminars and figure out exactly what's going on, get their final security briefings and clearances mm-hmm. and all of those mm-hmm. things and start to receive uh, all of the all that information so that they can um, be ready to actually do the job so there can be sort of a clean mm-hmm. um, handoff mm-hmm. of, of all of these jobs. Um, and so that's basically what you what you would normally expect. And you would... Um, you know, you you would as 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 Andy said, you would expect to see uh, you know in some ways you know part of what uh, we're going to get to is generally speaking, these uh, the campaigns have been gearing up for these, right? They mm-hmm. they have a lot of people in mind and sort of a lot of lists of people uh, before they even get to this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of what we're about to talk about here is what the what the current um, situation looks like. Yeah, a little and, bit. And, so. and maybe it's worth noting with that. I mean, I think one of the things that is interesting here is that. 
you know, the, the election of Donald Trump last week was a surprise to a lot of people. And I think possibly including parts of the Trump campaign. I think, yeah, that's what I would, I would definitely say that. I think they, they themselves were surprised. They themselves thought they had a chance, but I don't think they thought the odds were in favor of that. And so I, I do think that there was actually less thought that had gone into what would this Trump administration look like. Um, in his camp than there probably had been in the Clinton camp where they had the opposite expectation. They thought they would win, right? Right. And so they were already starting to think ahead to what do we do and when we win. And for the right. Trump administration, it was just like, we got to take care of his, or the Trump campaign, rather, it was, you know, we got to take care of business right now and try to give ourselves a chance. So I do think that they were probably a little um, less ready to hit the ground running in terms of this um, this, this interim period between the election and the, the inauguration. Um, just because, you know, again, the expectation in their camp as well as in the Clinton camp was that she was the odds on favorite. Yeah. I want to ask two questions. One's easy and one's hard. I'm going to start with the hard one. Okay. <laughs> um, you mentioned, uh, Mitch, that there's sort of a job sharing process that the outgoing administration will sort of show the incoming administration, or at least the, the mirror positions, mm-hmm. um, kind of the ropes of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the office. Yeah. I think this is beyond just an office tour, but this is, a, this <laughs> yeah. is an insight. Here are the into, paper clips. Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, this is insight into the processes that have been created. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that seems striking to me because in the uh, most of our presidential transitions have been to the opposite party. Mm-hmm. How helpful or how acrimonious are these transition job shadowing transitions? Uh, it's, it, I think I think it, part of it depends on the job. It depends mm-hmm. on which which uh, part you're looking at. So if you're looking at some of the lower level stuff and you're looking at sort of the uh, major agencies, these are fairly. Generally speaking, probably fairly smooth. Mm. Um, and you see a lot of people just basically say, you know, handing off. Because in many ways, I mean, when you talk about the cabinet and you, you talk about the major agencies, um, e- even though you have a new incoming administration, um, the new people who are at the top of the administration will, um, will not be able to change uh, an incredible amount very quickly. Um, I mean, while the president can True. change some policy and can, you know. By executive order, for example. Right, by executive order and, and, and by other uh, directives. Um, it, it takes a while because you actually have most of the most of the people who are already doing these jobs have established standard operating procedures, and they are right, right. not going to easily um, and suddenly shift. Uh, you know, barring new legislation and new mm-hmm. um, you know mm-hmm. direct direct orders. And so, when you're talking about people coming into these positions, it really is kind of you know as as you were describing, sort of learning how does this agency actually work, what are they doing, how do they do it, um, right. and sort of figuring out what what kind of changes you can make. Um, almost at the margins in some ways, right. mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's so. So in that way, now on on the other hand, um, there are all sorts of wonderful stories about the upper level. So the very top yeah. level, where you like, for example, the Clinton administration removing the W's from keyboards in the White so House. So the George W. Bush couldn't be typed in the right. Keyboards. So yeah. yeah. So 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 you do hear <laughs> stories about things exceptionally like that. petty, right? Right. So um, at the upper at at, at the top levels, um, particularly for like the White House staff and maybe the executive office of the president, things like that, you're going to mm-hmm. see a little bit more. Um, of the sort of tension, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at getting a getting a new, uh, at getting a new person coming in there, and, and it's at that level too. It's at that top level where you will see the most dramatic change. So, yeah. um, mm-hmm. so for these people, they are the ones who are going to mostly be loyalists to the new administration, and who are going to and who have been loyalists to the previous generation mm-hmm. or the previous administration. <laughs> um, and so that's where you're probably gonna, that's where you're going to see the most tension. Yeah. What's worth noting here too is I think, um, and this is this was kind of striking is when um, after Donald Trump was elected, um, you know President Obama said you know he said we, we want to do a good job in this transition and he actually said some very nice things about the way that the Bush administration actually handled this transition. He said they were very helpful and of course that's quite striking because if your, your political memory extends back to 2008 as mine does, right? I mean you remember that um, President Obama won election in a, an election which he 
he attacked President Bush um, pretty strongly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so he was he said a lot of very negative things about the way Bush had handled pretty much everything, right? Um, and so you know, this was not an election in which he had sort of you know softballed the the, the current president, and yet when that transition happened. Um, you know, Bush and Obama worked together um, to make that smooth because they they did view this as important for the country. Yeah. And so Obama's There's something kind of heartening about that. Yeah, and Obama's um, made a very strong point of saying, "Hey, look, even though I didn't vote for this guy, he was elected. Um, this is the you know, choice the American people have made, and we're going to do everything possible to try to help him succeed and to make this transition mm-hmm. good." So hopefully, I mean, like you know, it's one thing for the president to say that, and to Mitch's point, it's another thing for all the people down <laughs> below to do that, yeah. right? But but that's a good sign, right? That is a I think, and to Chris's point, it's it's heartening to see. Um, that they, you know, there's an ability to step back and say, okay, let's put the country yeah. first, even though we have obviously some pretty deep political disagreements here. Yeah, I'm, maybe I'm being overly optimistic here, but although both, you know, uh, people, this, uh, Democrats and Republicans at this high level certainly want to see their counterparts fail when it comes to policy choices. Right. But they're both, they're all patriots enough that they want to see America succeed. Right. They may have different right. visions of what it means for America to succeed, but, sure. um, I don't think that George W. Bush wanted to leave office and have Barack Obama's institutional systems break down inside the office. Right. Um, and I don't think Barack Obama wants Donald Trump's uh, institutional systems inside the office break down, right. even if he doesn't want right. some of his policy goals yeah. to become and accomplished. Obama's speech, I, mean, I think it was the day after the election, was very nice in this regard. I mean, I watched that. Um, it was about a 10-minute thing right outside the um, Oval Office. And it was, you know, yeah, he basically said that we're patriots first, right? And yeah. that was sort of his the big takeaway. Um, and so, you know, I thought that that's, that's the right attitude, right? Um, yeah. And that's the, what we would hope to see as we try and transition from one administration to another. And it's worth And I hope we're not too cynical. And I hope we're not – I hope we're not – Too we're Pollyannish? Uh, yeah, too Pollyannish. <laughs> yeah, actually some kind but, of – I, mean, uh, I think, you know, for, for me as somebody who grew up in a developing world country and who studies the politics of Africa, right? I mean, I think this is one thing about our system that has been very good, right? Mm-hmm. And that has been in, in some ways quite exceptional um, compared to a lot of presidential democracies, right? Which is um, that we do have these very um, good transitions from one president to another. And, yeah, petty, you know, things aside like removing double use from keyboards right um we do um peacefully transition and they usually try to help each other do that and you know even despite the fact that more often than not it seems like we're transitioning from a president of one party to a president of the other party and right. yet we do have this very you know sort of strong tradition of a peaceful and co- even cooperative transition uh, which is really healthy so the transition between obama and trump might be peaceful but the transition inside the Trump campaign perhaps <laughs> isn't. Uh, so here's the easy question. Um, All right. Who is in charge of the Trump transition? <laughs> Why do you think that's an easy question? <laughs> well, it used to be an easy question. Okay. Well, let's just say it's oh, not dear. Chris Christie. But it used yeah. to be. <laughs> it used to be Chris Christie. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's Mike Pence on yeah. paper, right? Um, yeah, that's the, definitely the right answer on paper as of today. And this is, yeah, I should note, Thursday, November 17th, 2016, right? Um, at, at roughly 9.45. At, at 9.45 as Chris looks at his incredibly exceptional watch. Stop. Uh, <laughs> I'm wearing an ostentatious watch today. and. There's ostentatious, and then there's that watch. <laughs> it's a great watch. Anyway, I just laugh every time Chris wears that watch. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'll try not to get too distracted by Chris's watch here. Um, so Mike Pence is in charge of this right now. Yes. Um, and after Chris Christie got <laughs> somewhat unceremoniously pushed out, and his, his Brutally, cronies are getting I mean, pushed out. And, this was a, I mean, he's still this, technically this was, vice chair. but This was a palace you know, assassination. Yeah. Um, Pretty much, except that he's still, like, sort of lingering. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I don't think peacefully. No. Uh, well, I don't. Let's unpack this a little bit without getting too deep into the New York Times um, or the Wall Street Journal. Chris Christie was one of the earliest and 
biggest profile supporters of Donald Trump. <laughs> um, is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, not even all of Donald Trump's supporters at the highest level like with, like or agree with each other. Right. Um, yep. Who? Uh, what got Chris Christie removed from this transitional uh, position? Well, partly the scandals, right? I mean, sure. he's got scandals going on back home. I mean, Chris Christie's administration, it's, you know, he's denying that he did it himself, and the evidence on that is mixed, I guess. But, you know, Chris Christie's administration very clearly um, was doing really petty things like, you know, sort of essentially blocking up roads to punish mayors who didn't support Chris Christie Correct. in his reelection campaign it's clear back in that, It seems clear that his aides were aware of this. His aides were aware. They've been convicted. I mean, and, and you know, the the... Their version is that the governor knew this, essentially, right? I mean, yeah. so, you know, there's a lot of scandals surrounding him, so there's a very practical reason right. to remove him. It's also not clear to me, and it hasn't been clear to me all along, even this Trump's certainly taken Chris Christie's support and, you know, benefited from it. Uh, it's not clear to me that he has much respect for Chris Christie. I mean, yeah. there was just there were a lot of indications, yeah. even when Christie declared his support for Trump back in the spring, um, that he kind of disrespected him. And... You know, and all along there's just been these sort of little snubs to Christie, yeah. and it just, yeah. It, yeah. So this, in that sense, it fits here too. But the scandals alone are a good reason to demote him. I yeah. think. Although sure. with that said, I'm not sure that Trump respects really many of the people that he's surrounded True. himself with. That's I a mean, fair point. Yeah. Um, you know, he's also had a number of snubs and dis- and moments of disrespect for Mike Pence. He's had mm-hmm. this for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, for part, yeah, for sure. yeah, yeah. There's been a lot yeah. uh, for him. Uh, also, f- obviously, for Reince Priebus. I mean, there's been all sorts <laughs> yeah. of. Uh, and now Reince here. Priebus has been named to as, as Donald Trump's chief of staff, yeah, chief of staff yeah. which is a right. very important position. Yeah. Essentially, is the president's inside the White House manager yeah. of of presidential affairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. one of the, one of the things that's important to think about too, I think, just to illustrate how influential that position is too, is mm-hmm. um, one of the a lot of people believe that one of the reasons uh, President Obama was so effective at first, especially, was because he had Rahm Emanuel, who was a right. very Right. Effective chief of staff who very much knew how to manage things and work uh, inside the Washington system. Yep. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, well, he, I mean, he left to go also pursue politics in Chicago. But he himself is a very divisive figure yeah. uh, inside the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. But quite pretty effective very in effective. terms of oh, like, the former congressman yeah. mm-hmm. who who could get things done. And it felt like after he left that the, the administration flailed a lot more a little in bit. terms of yeah. A White House chief of staff done. can be an incredible asset to administration and occasionally a liability. For sure. Um, okay. Well, there's another angle to this too, and some of this is speculative. And like again, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's Thursday at 9:45. Right. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, one of the things, one of one of the groups we do think that Donald Trump places a lot of faith in um, is his family. Um, he's <laughs> the, uh, a couple points to that. Um, he is he has requested. Um, Top secret security clearance for his children. I, I don't think all of his children. I don't think Barron gets top secret security clearance. Um, He's very good at computers. Though. He is very good at like computers. He came out in one of the debates. I, I believe. I believe <laughs> so. we're talking about his um, his more senior children. Um, uh, <laughs> like the twenties and up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ivanka and Donald Jr. Does and Tiffany get clearance too? I don't just, believe so. I, don't know. I haven't heard of that. But 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 also his son-in-law Jared Kushner. Right. Right. Uh, Ivanka's husband. <laughs> And um, this 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 is what becomes a little bit speculative. But uh, Kushner's father was prosecuted right. by Chris Christie yep. when Christie himself was a district attorney. Right. And the the, the court, that court case was settled before trial. But perhaps there's perhaps Donald Trump's son-in-law doesn't like Chris Christie very much. Yes. For putting for for you know for indicting his father. Right. So <laughs> Kushner seems to have a pretty strong influence on his father-in-law. Yeah. As long as, as well as Ivanka, who also has a strong influence on her father, mm-hmm. and I think this is possibly a source of what's who's really guiding the transition. Yeah. Is Donald Trump? I think is leaning on his family. 
Right. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Yeah. He definitely, he definitely. Tr- I mean, to to Mitch's point, he trusts and I think respects his family a lot more um, than he does most of his other advisors. I mean, he he is he doesn't he doesn't make these kind of slights toward Ivanka. Mm-hmm. Or toward um, Eric or Donald Jr. Right in the way that he has done with Pence and with Christie and um, and even to some extent with others. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's fair point. Yeah. Well, the, the news stories resonating this last week, which one which led me to want to talk about transitions today, have been that the Trump transition team is in chaos. Right. Uh, that there's not really a person at the helm, or not, or there isn't a, a, a consistent person at the helm of the transition. Christie is in, then he's out. Um, the 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 children are playing uh, politics behind the scenes, um, and it's not clear who's going to step up and sort of lead this process. And that they're well behind what previous presidents have done in terms of the speed and efficiency of their transitions. Right, they've got two appointments announced so far, right? Right, just the two, yeah. just the two that I'm that I'm aware of. Yeah, I've only heard two. Is is so? Are we is is this much ado about nothing? Is this a hangover from the deep divisiveness of the election, or is the Trump Trump campaign or I'm sorry the Trump administration already behind because of uh, poor transition effort? How much does this matter? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of torn on how much does this matter. I mean, because well, one thing is cl- I think clear. There's not a lot of things that are super clear to me, but this is clear: is that this is going to this administration is going to look different, right? They're going to do things differently. They're not going to be tight in the way that others have been. So, what do you mean oh, by that? By that, I mean like in other words, have a tightly crafted message that mm. they're very consistent about, and they really sort of are very disciplined. I mean, like you know, we, we've gotten used in the past eight years to a very disciplined administration, right? I mean, Barack Obama. And, and, and to whatever, be fair, there was a very disciplined eight years before that too, and yeah. before that too, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you know, these these are presidents who had. Teams that controlled their message very tightly. They were they stayed on they stayed on target for the most part. They didn't go off and say random things, right? They didn't just get up there and and talk about whatever, right? I mean, they stayed on on script, so to speak, right? And and so both I think both Bush and Obama, and really to a large extent, I mean, even the administrations before that, right? I mean, um, they've been like that because they've been classic politicians mm-hmm. and they they know how the game is played and they play it according to. The rules, for the most part, right? Um, Donald Trump is non-traditional. He is not a politician. Um, he is somebody who just likes to get up there and talk. He likes to hear himself talk. Um, and he doesn't seem to worry too much about sort of everything being unified and scripted carefully. I mean, and, and the thing is, like, what's weird about all this, right, is that normally we'd expect that to really hurt him, and it didn't in the end, right? I mean, he won, and he won a fairly substantial victory <laughs> despite running the most chaotic convention in memory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, the Republican convention was kind of all over the map, despite having, you know, really undisciplined debates um, in which he sort of just said all sorts of random things that normally would have gotten people in big trouble, right? But not so much with him, um, despite holding lots of rallies in which he said a lot of crazy things that were, you know, I mean, like sometimes the, the Clinton campaign would just take what he said and run it as an ad. Right. Um, and you didn't even need to do anything else, really, um, from their perspective. Right. So so that worked for him. I mean, that, that is who he is. And right. so, you know, I, I think we should expect this to be kind of the new normal. I mean, that it's going to be a little chaotic. And then the question is, within that chaos, can it be a productive chaos? Can they get things done within the chaos? Mm-hmm. And I think. You know that's that's going to be the the question because it's one thing to run a campaign well or to successfully, and it's another thing to be able to get things done in government. I'll just I'll only add to that, and then Mitch, I'm sorry, I'm stepping on your toes here a little bit. But as somebody who studies political psychology, one of the things we know is that in chaotic systems, individual personalities begin to matter more, not less. Right. Mm-hmm. In uh, controlled systems, su- systems matter more. Right. And we might enter into a world where Donald Trump's personality matters more, both mm-hmm. his positives mm-hmm. and his negatives. 
And the people he surrounds himself with will have more of a chance to execute their will than might normally happen in a, in a presidential system. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I think is going to be um, curious to kind of to kind of watch here is as we as, as we see this, one of the one of the things that the presidents really rely on in order to get in order to enact their, you know, earlier, you know, uh, you know, we were saying that or at least I was saying that uh, a lot of the admin, a lot of the executive agencies, basically the, the kind of changes that can be made are changes at the margins. Right. Um, but nonetheless, if you are actually going to change things um, mm-hmm. as a president and particularly in um, all sorts of policy areas, you know, you can't do that on your own and you really rely on the people you're going to uh, you're going to be appointing. And I think one of the things to to be wondering about is how, you know, if, 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 if the administration is having trouble finding people and actually mm-hmm. getting themselves organized, how well are 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 these agencies actually going to follow along mm-hmm. um, and how much are they going to feel that they can just continue to do their own thing i mean because one of the things that it's you know that uh, mm-hmm. that's always important to remember especially when we think about bureaucracy is that you know we use the term bureaucracy and you know we think of systems but these are still people sure right. and these are still right. people who do their jobs and make a lot of uh, on the ground decisions about what kinds of things they're going to do right and if we you know if the if you have strong leadership and people who are basically trying to follow a certain set agenda that's very clear which is what previous presidential administrations have tried to do set up right. here's what we are doing here are the talking points here's the direction mm-hmm. we're going but if you don't have that it it uh, as Chris was saying it, it opens the door for the personalities not just at the top but it also opens That's the door for point. the personalities all through the rest of the bureaucracy That's to actually begin to assert themselves so mm-hmm. we may see um a trump administration if it uh has more trouble actually establishing exactly who's in charge what the basic message is we may actually see um, a lot more independence on the part of these different agencies Good and point. more difficulty for trump and the people at the top to actually guide and direct policy yeah, and that, and I don't know. Like, I'm I'm torn on how much that's going to matter to him, right? I mean, because um, one of the things that came out of his meeting with Obama is Obama's kind of convinced that Trump is essentially pragmatic, right? It's just sort of about what works, mm-hmm. um, and or at least that's what he said, right? I mean, whether he's actually convinced to that personally, who knows, right? But that's what the president said, um, and I, I I actually kind of think that instinct might be right um, on the president's part. And so if that's the it's case, it's certainly a hopeful I mean, thought might, for Obama. It's a hopeful thought for Obama and for us, right? Um, as a country, right? But if that's right then it might be that Trump only cares about a few big things, right? That it's like, okay, I want to change. And maybe there's three or four big things he really wants to see happen. He prioritizes that. He works with Congress to get that done. He tells his, you know, executive staff around him to make sure those things happen. And then maybe he doesn't care. I mean, maybe he, yeah. because if he doesn't in have the a grand... Absence of his of him caring, other people will care. Well, exactly, right? And yeah. so then it comes down to, as Mitch says, I mean, like what these lower level people are doing, right? And then the question is, do they have ideological agendas or are they essentially just going to be like whatever works or... Most likely, mm-hmm. whatever has been working for them, right? Um, because a lot of, again, a lot of the positions down through the government bureaucracy are not political appointments. I mean, the mm-hmm. president has about right. four thousand political appointments, right? But, but a lot of the other stuff is just done by people who are civil service employees, right? I mean, they're going to keep doing their jobs and they're going to do whatever's worked under Obama or under Bush, right? Which is actually a good hallmark um, of our democracy, which yeah. we do not have a yeah. spoil system, right? right we um, used to, of course, yeah, we and then we ch- we've changed that in the nineteenth century, we, partly as a result of a president getting assassinated by. Some a mentally deranged person who was upset that he had not gotten a position in government, which it seems evident was probably a good decision on the president's part. But, right. um, but, but having people in the right. State Department, having people in the Treasury, having yeah. people in Commerce who will outlive any or in, yeah. in their positions yeah. any given president yeah. is itself a good thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So this could end up mean, meaning that a lot of the government just ends up being more pragmatic than anything else. I mean, if there's or not works orthogonally to the presidential administration yeah. itself. What's that? Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, there could be a. Yeah. 
conflict there, right? For sure. I mean, there's also, of course, I mean, part of it too becomes, you know, you have the agencies who constantly have the incentive to try to increase their own role to try to right. um, overtake more <laughs> and more. So we may, yeah. one of the other side effects of this may be there may be more infighting amongst the um, agencies themselves <laughs> as they attempt to jockey for more position, more funding right. and things like that. And presidents will curry mm-hmm. in for, uh, favor with certain uh, uh, agencies right. and not others. I mean, as a perfect case of this, Donald Trump frequently cited during the campaign that he was endorsed by ICE. Uh, immigrations and customs enforcement. He wasn't endorsed by the agency. He was endorsed by the union of employees. Right. And yeah. that makes sense. If Donald Trump is going to build a wall or some form of a wall, or if he's going to massively right. increase um, immigration, he's going to have to increase funding. Right. That means those those yeah. employees get better jobs, mm-hmm. or they get better pay, or they get more employees, more influence, yeah. and more influence. And so it's it's not surprising then that they would mm-hmm. they would endorse him and support him. Other another agency like the State Department might not. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite famously, <laughs> uh, during, no, they might have preferred Hillary Clinton. Um, the State Department, correct. Quite famously, there was a sharp disjunction between Condoleezza Rice under the Bush administration right. when she was Secretary of State and the actual civil service. Long-term employees right. of the State Department um, underneath her, so much so that her, un, you know, her um, assistant secretaries of state were basically in charge of trying to just keep all the employees in line and on message. Right. Um, and other, uh, but to be fair, uh, Colin Powell, uh, George W. Bush's first secretary of state, was quite beloved by the secret- by the State Department. Right. Um, and so this really varies. And so the kind, mm-hmm. and, and this is kind of what I wanted to get to, gentlemen. The kinds of people that Donald Trump picks to outfit his cabinet and to outfit the top of his presidency are incredibly important. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to I'm going to say this and see what you think is. I think this might be the most important thing Donald Trump does in his entire administration. Um, yes, he will have other moments. He will be sure. tested by foreign sure. leaders. He will have key pieces of legislation that pass or fail. President Obama will look back at Obamacare, for example, mm-hmm. or um, perhaps the uh, the killing of Osama bin Laden. But in reality, setting these people up in these agencies, in these positions, this has the greatest effect on U.S. government that anything a president will do. And difficultly, difficultly, that's not a word. <laughs> that's not quite um, a word. But um, <laughs> perilously, how's that? Perilously. A president works. must do it at the very beginning of their presidency with almost yeah. no experience governing. And it's and it's hard to I mean you can get rid of these people of course if they are really disasters but it's hard because it and it has makes political it costs seem like you yeah it's political costs makes it seem like you made a bad decision um, and I think you're limited how many of them you can do I mean like you can you can can one often presidents do right often sure. there's one who they realize like that was just a disaster so I mean like President Bush for example got rid of his first Treasury Secretary in pretty short order um, you know it was President, the four Hank Paulson right um, oh yeah Hank Paulson was the last one wasn't yeah he? there were like who was that? there were at least three it wasn't Snow was Snow the first one or the second one. No, Paul O'Neill was the first one. There we go. And then um, Snow, I think, was the second one. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, um, and then like, like Clinton had to get rid of his um, his uh, first defense secretary who didn't work, really work out very and well. Famously, Surgeon General. Um, and Yeah, Surgeon General turned into a bit of a fiasco for him, too. So, I mean, you can get rid of them, but there's a cost, as Chris points yeah. out. Right? I mean, like politically, this is distracting. It leads to some very bad news cycles, right? Um, so you want to get these decisions right. And I think... You know, to our earlier conversation, too, I mean, I think these appointments may matter even more in a Trump administration precisely because I don't think Trump has a sort of vision for exactly what he wants to do at all these lower levels. Mm-hmm. So I, I think these officials are very likely to have more authority um, under yep. Trump than they had under Obama or Bush or Clinton, all of whom were, I think, a lot more interested in the particular policies that are being carried out and viewed viewed these cabinet secretaries as more functionaries. I think under, yep. uh, under Trump, they have a, a chance to have a lot more power. 
especially since some of the personalities he's looking at are people who want to <laughs> right, have a, more right. power. Let, yeah. Let's um, let me unpack a little bit here. He's only named two people so far: Reince Priebus, right. former uh, chair of the Republican uh, uh, Republican Committee, or, I'm sorry, Republican Party, National Committee, right? Um, and is going to be his chief of staff. Uh, that's the less controversial pick. Uh, that's actually, Priebus, I think, a very good pick. Priebus I mean, is a is a is a Washington insider. Yeah. Um, he's been there a long time. He's um, he knows people he knows in the party. The he's been I mean, he's been head of the party since 2011. He knows, you know, he knows the senators, he knows the congressmen, which is a big part of this job of being able to make connections to the Congress. He knows yep. these people because he's helped all of them get elected or reelected. Um, and he's, you know, he's worked with all of them. So he's he's very well so connected. He's close personal friends of Paul Ryan, so the exactly. speaker of the house. So yes. there's a lot of yep. I, I think there's a ton of upside. I I don't think I think Trump was um, strongly encouraged to make this selection. There's evidence that the other appointment we'll talk about in just a minute was the one he actually wanted yeah. as chief of staff. But I think um, Ryan's previous was a, a good choice and could lead to this administration being able to get some things done more effectively yep. um, than they might otherwise. I think you're absolutely right. If you um, so if Priebus was a was a was an outreach to Paul Ryan and Congress, <laughs> the other appointment, Steve Bannon, dumb, dumb, dumb. Um, is as a reach out in the other direction. <laughs> Gents, who? Uh, um, well, we're going to hear a lot more about this. Maybe just a quick version of this. Who's Steve Bannon? <laughs> Steve Bannon has been the leader of Breitbart News, um, mm-hmm. and he uh, is someone who has generally been known for being. Um, Affiliated with fairly controversial um, <laughs> groups, uh, guys, we're soft selling this. Come on, yeah, we this are. This guy's okay. a white nationalist yeah, racist. Na- well, <laughs> yeah, okay, <All> right. <laughs> yeah, yep. Um, we'll call- um, well, I, I mean, I, I'd be yeah. I, I want to be careful about labeling too much, yeah. though. Even though he he definitely affiliates with those people, but um, yeah, I, I want to because I, I don't know. Like he's he's affiliated with Breitbart News, which does take a lot of those those kind of lines, right? But yes. um, he he hasn't necessarily come out and said a lot of things himself personally as much so i think, I think what i'd want to say know, is he aids that's because he, well okay I'm sorry, he aids and abets those people yeah. right uh, you know and, and, so and, that's, and as a as an editor for breitbart or as edit, was yeah. editor in chief was he yeah he's the top whatever he's the top, the top guy dog is. um top he, dude I mean, he's i mean he's he's <laughs> authorizing right the kinds of editorial content right. that breitbart's producing right and a lot of that fits Which, fits with a white nationalist Sure. Uh, yep. um, news cycle, and right. um, his, his his appointment was applauded by the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, right. this yep. is this is somebody who fits a certain part and a certain narrative within uh, the Republican Party. And yeah. uh, to be quite frank, it's the people who took seriously Hillary Clinton's um, basket of deplorables comment. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Bannon is someone who holds up proudly and says, "Yes, I'm in that basket." Um, and Clinton puts him in that basket. Yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think one of the things, and this is where I think Andy's sort of caution comes in here a little bit, um, and and it kind of shows the intersection here is um, there. there um, there's there's been a release of a number of interviews uh, that Bannon did of Trump early on in the campaign, and one of the things that's interesting is Trump would make uh, extremely controversial statements, like he mm-hmm. wanted to, uh, you know, basically, inv- you know, uh, go in and shut down certain mosques mm-hmm. and things like that. And Bannon would actually bring him on his show and would actually start leading him through different rhetoric to try to say this in a way that wasn't so controversial. Mm-hmm. He would say, "Oh, mm-hmm. you don't mean we're actually going to send in SWAT teams and things like that. You just mean we're going to monitor them and." try to prosecute people who might be involved right. in terrorism. Whatever right. heavy, heavy vetting means, for example. Right. And so, okay. and so, and so he's actually <laughs> right. like trying to help guide 
um, yeah. Trump into sort of more acceptable ways of saying uh, the kinds of things yeah. he's saying. And so I think that sort of gets to, mm-hmm. to Andy's point, right, where Bannon is actually extremely smart in the way that he actually says things and the kind yeah. of rhetoric he uses. And so it's very difficult to actually nail down, like, okay, here's a quote where he makes a mm-hmm. white nationalist statement or a specifically, you know. Yeah. Now, again, yeah. I mean, there, there are things where you can say, you know, we can talk about dog whistles, we can talk about all right. sorts sure, of right. things that you can right. say. But he's very smart about this. Yes, and yeah. in that way, you know, arguably that makes him even worse um but right it makes um, it potentially more dangerous right um but 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 in that way and so in that way i think you know trump selecting him uh it's probably signals right that he understands that he needs um some help uh in some ways moderating his rhetoric and saying uh some of these things in in more acceptable ways i think that's a fascinating take mitch because i wouldn't have expected you i wouldn't have expected bannon to be selected to help moderate trump's rhetoric that's that's a really good take i think Mm -hmm. that's interesting well, and I think the other thing we should throw in here, I mean, like, I, so let me make clear, like, in, in my perfect world, right, Steve Bannon would not be the counselor to the president. Um, he's not the kind of person yeah, by, I really By the like way, we see. never actually specifically said um, this. His position is chief strategist. Right. Chief staff strategist and senior counselor to the president, something like that, right? So um, he, you know, I'd rather not have him there. But let me play devil's advocate for a minute and make the case for why he, he is there and why he probably – even given what the kind of campaign Trump ran should be there, right? Um, he is there in part because he and Trump have developed that trust. So to Mitch's mm-hmm. point, I mean, they've, you know, he's he's been able to guide Donald Trump. Um, there's a reason he was brought on as CEO of the campaign in August when it was flailing. Um, and let's be honest, I mean, it, well, this worked, right? I mean, it yeah. didn't look like it was working, but it did. Um, and Trump won, right? And so you would expect somebody who who served the campaign well in its moment of need, it looked like it was collapsing, to be rewarded. Um, and in fact, Bannon is being rewarded, right? So that that makes sense. Anyone who's acting surprised by this, I find it a little disingenuous. I mean, like if you know you you would expect that somebody who did this for the campaign would get rewarded with high position. Um, and we can all be glad that it's not at least a cabinet position requiring right. approval or something like that because that would have been an ugly fight, right? So, um, you know, in the position he's getting, he doesn't have to be approved, exactly. which makes life a little easier. Um, and I think there there is a case to be made that you should have somebody like that in the White House, in, in Trump's White House, because Trump won with people who do listen to Bannon and who do read this these news sites and who take them seriously. I mean, I think Breitbart news, I think the word news should probably be put in scare quotes um, because a lot of it is is factually on, on the edge and maybe sometimes off the edge um, but at the same time um, a lot of Trump's core supporters take this very seriously and so you you can't get into the White House and then pretend those people don't exist right, right. I mean that's that's how Trump got here is by giving these kind of people uh, a voice right yep. and I don't mean and by these kind of people I don't mean that in a bad way right? like these are all white nationalists I think there are a few of those yep. uh, but I think a lot of them are just people who are genuinely scared and unhappy with where the country's going and um, and Bannon you know goes to an extreme on that but sometimes but he does he does speak in ways that they find appealing right maybe too strongly um, and so I think you know that voice has to be in there um, and so I, I think for all those reasons I mean, it does make sense right it has I guess to be for my, a pragmatic level it, yeah for yeah. a pragmatic level you have to have yeah. that that part as part of the conversation what concerns me and this gets back to Mitch's point is I mean like how influential will he be if, if Bannon is simply one of the voices in the White House and if he is part of the conversation and it's a free-flowing sort of widespread conversation um, in which he wins some and loses some and doesn't get his most extreme ideas passed, I can be okay with that. I mean, it's, again, not he wouldn't be my first choice for this position, to put it mildly, but, but I could be okay with that. If he becomes the dominant strategist and he, the administration policy is largely um, you know, sort of his vision of America, I think that becomes a problem. Yeah. I, think, I think part of this gets back to you know, a lot of times uh, people who look at uh, – 
pre- you know, the, the, the presidency and how presidents construct their administrations is sort of yep. a question of how hierarchical um, Trump constructs mm-hmm. his, his administration mm-hmm. here. Does he make it so that there are like two or three people or even right. just one person who's at the top basically calling the shots and organizing right. and sort of like set up like a pyramid or does it look more like they're, you know, uh, somewhat like Andy's describing mm-hmm. where you have more of a conversation. It's a little more egalitarian. You have a lot of people who are involved in all of these conversations. You know, Reagan famously had three people at the top and basically right. the troika. Right, yeah, the troika. He would talk to those people. He would tell them what he wanted to do and then they would actually just go and mm-hmm. make it happen. And right. he had very little contact with the rest of the people in his administration. Right. And so, um, you know, if basically if Bannon sort of takes on that kind of role, I yeah. think that's when um, you start to become yeah. more concerned because then mm-hmm. he basically controls everything going going down. Um, whereas, as Andy's describing, you know, if, if it mm-hmm. looks more like, you know, there are five, six, even 10, 15 people who are involved in a lot of these right. conversations and, and, and uh, decisions and hearing the orders directly from, um, from Trump himself, then you, then uh, his influence is obviously moderated. Yep, that's right. true. I think it's right. true. I, um, I do think the, mo- well, maybe I should ask you guys. One of the most influential senior advisors in recent history has been uh, for for George W. Bush, Karl Rove, mm-hmm. um, and then probably for uh, Barack Obama, Valerie Jarrett. Valerie Jarrett, right? Um, sure. And I think those are the kinds of people we're looking at here. Those both have been very influential um, with a with a clear pathway and a clear ear for the president. Mm-hmm. And if Bannon fills that kind of role, I think you'll see a much more outsized position for him on the in the administration. Mm-hmm. The, this kind of brings me back. And to He that. could well. I think he could well. He could well do that. But at the same time, we've already said Trump is doesn't place a lot of respect in a lot of the people who he's surrounded with. And if he right. just sees Bannon's support as critical to fulfilling some kind of a camp, uh, an implicit campaign pledge to mm-hmm. uh, white nationalist Breitbart newsreaders, um, not that all newsreaders are Breitbart or white nationalists, but there's an overlap right. there. Right. Um, then, uh, then maybe he gets he gets sidelined. Maybe this is a uh, Mm-hmm. You know, maybe he's listening more to Ivanka into into his own into into Kushner than he is to uh, um, to Bannon. Um, and that's my gut is that he ends up there, right? I mean, like I could see this being a very family administration, right? I mean, like this could feel like you know the family, right? <laughs> um, and I'd be like, I'm curious, right? For example, if if do any of the family members get cabinet posts, right? Mm. I think that's an outside possibility. Um, what role do they which do they have? Be un- formal role un- or just an informal role, right? Mm-hmm. But but I can see like he gets in trouble. I think he goes more to Ivanka and to Eric and Donald Jr. and Jared Kushner um, than he does to Bannon, and that's. Yeah. You know, even though I, I have worries about that, sort of a level of the, you know the concerns of nepotism and um, just sort of family family, family wouldn't be the first time. I mean, can you appoint his own brother for attorney general? Yeah, and it, and it, frankly, I mean, in some ways, it wouldn't be the worst thing either because I do think his kids' instincts are probably more moderate than um, than that of Bannon, right? So you know, I guess that's that's not a terrible thing, even though. Nepotism concerns aside, right? Um, it could I, think, be I think one of the things that's interesting about the family too, and again, some of this is, as we've said, you know, some of this is speculative. We've only been watching this unfold here for right. Know, we don't have privy to any inside information, days. right? You know, yeah, for less than two weeks, and so you know, the, we may see things sort of right and start looking. Um, better here. But one right. of the things that Trump has done that has also been fairly controversial is he has basically tried to ditch the news media a couple of times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Specifically to go and be with his family. Right. Um, right. And so one of the things that this sort of raises, you know, generally speaking, there's sort of this norm that the president is very transparent and very open mm-hmm. with what they're doing with their time. Um, be, you know, just as a 
sort of democratic process, basically, where mm-hmm. this is the most mm-hmm. powerful uh, actor, and so they should, you know, we should, right. you know, as, as you know, as a de- as a democracy, we should know what this person is doing mm-hmm. and be able to monitor them. And so Trump has actually basically run off from his press detail a couple of times now, mm-hmm. and basically to be with his family. And I think one of the things this raises, um, as we're thinking about, you know, the role that his family right. plays is, you know, how much oversight does that allow, um, and how much transparency is there then in that mm-hmm. process? And I think that's, um, in some ways, another. Uh, concern perhaps about the about the role that his family might play in, in policy yeah and and he's talking like him he may not even stay in the white house all the time right he's talking about like yeah. i might spending time with his time in new york and um living there my you know his sort of gold-plated apartment um and you know that's actually might, gold-plated come on um i yeah parts of it are right, okay actually, I, think. Mm. I think so <laughs> I, I could be wrong with that but um there are pictures that seem to indicate that <laughs> i don't know if it's all real gold um, like unlike Notre Dame's dome, no, Notre Dame's dome is actually plated with real gold. Wow! Um, so I, as a Notre Dame alum, I've got to get that in there. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so especially this year, especially this year, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so um, you know, so I think you know, th- that'll be interesting too. I mean, like, does he actually sort of split time between the White House and New York? Um, does he keep holding lots of campaign rallies? He suggested mm-hmm. that he might do that. Um, so this is going to be, I mean, I think it's going to be different than what we've seen other presidents do. Yep. Um, I don't know exactly how Donald Trump's going to do this, but I don't expect <laughs> this model to look like anything that we're terribly familiar with. Yeah. So you're right. Um, it's going to be fascinating. Any, I mean, are there any other, uh, appointments you're particularly interested in right now? Or yes. Potential so many, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we haven't heard them yet. And so it's all speculative right, right now, but people to keep an eye on, there's offices to keep an eye on and people to keep an eye on. Yes. Um, in my opinion, because I'm a foreign policy guy, the most important cabinet-level position a president will appoint is Secretary of State. Mm. And I'm kind of concerned about that one right now because <laughs> yeah. Rudy Giuliani is getting a lot of press. And, I, and Newt Gingrich. Yeah, although Gingrich has hinted he might want more of a – well, he sounded almost like he wanted Bannon's position, honestly, mm-hmm. like chief strategist and sort of had the ear of the president but not actually have to run something. Right. Yeah. Um, which maybe – I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But Another name, another name getting mentioned is John Bolton. Yeah, John um, Bolton. John Bolton was a – um, was a UN amb- ambassador to the UN under the Bush administration, uh, ambassador to the UN, but famously very, very critical of the UN mm-hmm. and critical of inter of multilateral internationalism in general. Uh, yeah. I think he famously said that the UN in New York could lose ten floors and no one would notice. Right. Um, and uh, this is uh, so. I mean, these are people who are setting up to be um, pretty skeptical of mm-hmm. America's commitments to uh, allies abroad. And mm-hmm. to commitment to in, to working through international institutions and multilateralism, yep. generally yep. speaking. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's one thing to pay attention to. I would think Trump would want to announce Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Treasury, Commerce soon. relatively soon. Yeah. And we should expect him to see that if his transition team is working effectively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I guess I'm a little concerned about Giuliani at state because that's when there's been hints that Giuliani wants state. Giuliani was obviously one of the high-profile Trump supporters. And, yes. Um, Giuliani has certainly many skills. I mean, he's, uh, I think, did a lot of really good things as governor or as mayor of New York City. Um, but I'm just not convinced that he has the right skill set for Secretary of State. I don't see him having a lot mm-hmm. of diplomatic skills. I don't see anything in his background that suggests that he's really well prepared to do that, um, that he has any particular expertise. And so I, I would kind of hope that he ends up somewhere else i mean he's going to obviously get a position and that would be okay mm-hmm. um somebody thought attorney general for attorney for, general would make more sense even homeland security honestly would make a lot more mm-hmm. sense it's true um then then secretary of state in my opinion so i would be a little disappointed if he ends up at state um jeff sessions who is the, the one prominent sort of trump supporter in the u.s senate and kind of backed him very early on 
um, is getting a lot of uh, sort of press as possibly for yes. defense secretary or maybe maybe um, you know homeland security also. But um, that would be it seems like a solid choice. I mean, yeah. it seems fine. Um, you know. I'll throw one more thing out here, and then we need to actually kind of wrap up, gents. And I think what we're, I think what we're going to do is make this a two-parter because what we've <laughs> yeah. talked about is, is transitions inside the Trump uh, um, administration. I want to talk about transitions outside the Trump administration, specifically how our country transitions through this election. <laughs> well, I want yeah. to kind of address directly the rancor right. Right. Um, and vitriol of this yeah. election, and, and then kind of what we do about that. Mm-hmm. But before we before we uh, sign off, um, Elliot Cohen. Uh, yep. um, has uh, is a conservative uh, foreign policy expert. Um, he was in the Bush administration. Specifically, he mm-hmm. was a counselor to Condi Rice at State um, during the latter mm-hmm. part of the Bush administration. Right. Um, he was a vocal critic of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. But after he after Trump won, he said, "Let's give this guy a chance." Conservative foreign policy experts go interview. Let's go work for this guy. Let's make this a, you know, right. let's let's kind of get behind this person that we right. oppose. He was a never Trumper who won it, and and he met with um, some folks in the Trump administration, and he revised that opinion. He said, "Stay away." This he basically is, did the equivalent of running away yeah. screaming. He said, <laughs> "He said this is an this is an arrogant, angry group yeah. that's screaming we won," and um, or something like that. It was pretty close to what he said. Yeah. Um, there is a division inside the Republican Party now. There are some mm-hmm. Republicans who are very anxious and nervous who will not serve right. uh, in the Trump administration. That wasn't the case with Obama, and that really wasn't the case with George W. Bush either. They right. mostly had their pick of the people in their party to serve for them, right? For, with, right. With, with, a, with a few minor exceptions. Very minor. Right? Yeah. I mean, most people would have said, you know, like I mean, if they if they were saying I won't serve, it's usually because they weren't going to get asked anyway. Right. Right. <laughs> and. Yeah. Um, Trump might be dealing with a much smaller talent pool than presidents mm-hmm. typically had to select from because he's so divisive within his own party. Right, right. Much as he did when he selected vice president. I mean, right. I mean, he, you know, Mike Pence was sort of the best available option, but out of a, a problematic group of choices, right? Because a lot of people simply didn't want to run with this guy, right? Yeah. Um, and I think he had that same dynamics likely to play out with his cabinet choices. Yeah. Yep. Right. yep. So we'll, we'll revisit that topic. We'll talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about that next time. But we'll continue with our discussion of transitions at our next podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, as always, email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Um, and until next time, I'm Chris Moore on behalf of my colleagues saying, Go Royals. Go Royals.